Well, good evening, Rocky Peak. And what a week it's been. Uh, we, um, we're going to be talking about that, uh, going to be diving in, and, uh, but it's so good to be here with you, and I look forward to being together as a church so we can process this together. And uh, so we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. My name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors. If it's your very first time, I want to welcome you. Inside the program is a, a green and white message note sheet we use every week. You'll definitely want to take that out. We'll be using it a lot today. And if you guys are all set, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay. God, we're excited to be here because we want to seek you together in the midst of uh, tumultuous times. That, God, we are thankful that you are a rock and that there is a river that runs through this city of God. And then in, in times of trouble, in times of upset, that you say, be still and know that I am God. And so we come today, God, as your people, uh, ready to listen and to hear from you. And so, God, I pray that, as always, that you would speak, God, that you would take your word, you would unfold it. I pray for great clarity, I for wisdom, discernment. I pray as a church we'd gather around you as a family and that we would listen and hear what the Spirit has to say. And we pray that your Spirit would speak with power and might and clarity and encouragement um, and great grace and kindness today. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today <laughs> in Syracuse, New York, on a college campus. She's a, uh, she's a college professor. She's 34 years old, and she is associate professor of English. Just about a year ago, she got tenure, which at Syracuse University is no easy thing. And so her future is set, and in many ways, that her life has become everything that she dreamed of. She's not only a professor of English, she's a professor professor of women's studies. She's a radical feminist. She's a lesbian. She lives with her uh, longtime lover. They're in a domestic partner relationship. In fact, they helped shape it for Syracuse University. And uh, they own two homes, one in the country, um, one in the city. Uh, And because of her um, notoriety and her reputation, uh, she's often invited to speak. She's she's been the keynote speaker at at some uh, gay rights parades. She's been asked to lecture at many top universities in our country, including Harvard. And so life is coming together for her. Her field of study was 19th century uh, English studies, much based on uh, writers who base their philosophy on the writings of Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Charles Darwin. So she's definitely a postmodernist. In fact, her specialty field is queer studies, uh, which is a study of uh, kind of a postmodern study of gay and lesbian uh, uh, studies. And so at this point, she's pretty much got it made. She's reached her goals. She is respected by her colleagues. She's a published author. She is loved by her students, and her life is secure. And then it happens. <laughs> One day, a letter comes across her desk. And she opens it not knowing that her life is about to change. Well, today, <laughs> we are going to continue this study that we, a uh, series that we started last week, kind of a short series, that's called The Culture Crisis. Um, and today, I'm, I'm calling this message Leading with Love. And um, so we're going to be wrapping it up today. If you're here last week, um, we started off with a couple kind of big picture principles. And I think the best way to, to launch in today is to go back and pick up where we left off. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called The Culture Crisis Leading with Love. And there are uh, a section called First Steps. And uh, what I want to do is just quickly hit on these first two points we hit last week just to set the stage because in many ways... They lay the foundation for everything else that we're going to be talking about today. So we're not going to spend much time there. That's why the blanks are filled in. I don't even want to slow you down. But, because I know some of you are like, now what was that? Mm. Mm. So um, the, first, the first thing we looked at last week is, I, I call the first step that we need to take as we move into these times, is we need to know the time. So we talked about this, that we're 
as a nation, as a culture, we're going through rapidly changing times, aren't we? And, um, and so it's important that we understand where we've come from and where we're going. Many cultural observers, especially uh, very smart Christ-following uh, cultural observers, would say that we're at a cultural tip of, tipping point, not only because of the elections this last week, but because of decisions that have made high levels of our culture in the last couple of years. And so last week I said that as followers of Jesus, we need to understand where we are and how we got here. And we talked about this, how over the last 50 years as a, as a culture, we've increasingly bought into what I call sort of a postmodern materialist mindset or worldview. Kind of a, a view that all of creation, all the cosmos is just a result of one um, long series of random, billions of years of random accidents. And so once you break that down, what that really means is there's no such thing as ultimate values, right and wrong, uh, truth in error. And so you can kind of create up values as you go. And so we looked at Romans 1 and 2, and the Apostle Paul says that this is what happens in a culture that when, when a culture rejects the truth about God that's revealed in creation and revealed in conscience, that we lose touch not only with who God is, we lose touch with who we are. And so we talked about this, that, that this leads in Romans 1, it says to a series of events that starts with, uh, with uh, a confusion that's a spiritual confusion about who God is, and it leads to sexual confusion about who we are, and leads to social confusion. And the ultimate final step is sort of a moral inversion, a chaos in culture where right becomes, uh, right becomes wrong and wrong becomes right, black becomes white, white becomes black. And so, um, so we said, it says, followers of Jesus, we need to understand where we are in our cultural history, how we got here, because if we're going to be salt and light in the midst of culture, we need to understand the dynamic that we're a part of, right? So that's number one. Number two, the second step we said we needed to take was we needed to embrace repentance, that, uh, that if, the, if, the core, uh, if the core sin of our culture, our race is to reject the truth about God that's been revealed in creation and conscience, then the only solution is a deep repentance. Um, and we talked about how that has to start with the church of Jesus. It's not going to happen on its own out there, that we have to be a conduit of that. So we have to, it starts with us getting on our knees, uh, sold out, where Jesus' followers were filled with his spirit, and so we can lead the way, uh, kind of be salt and light and be a conduit of that repentance and grace to a culture that's desperately Needs it. And so, so that was where we, we left it last week. And so today I want to build on that and talk about three more steps. And I got to tell you, I am not sure what's coming out today. There is so much stuff packed in this brain. I have already cut out point number six. There was a point number six. And, uh, and so um, I'm going to limit it to three. Uh, and I don't know where this is going. So here we go. Uh, so number one, the, the first step today, number three, is to keep your perspective. Now, uh, when I say keep your perspective, what I really mean is keep God's perspective, because yours might be screwed up. I'm not sure. Um, mine might be screwed up. So what I'm really saying is that in the midst of cultural crisis, there's a tendency to panic. And uh, as followers of Jesus, we don't want to do that. Uh, King Jesus is still on the throne. Amen? And uh, he has a vision for creation. He's got a plan. He's working out that plan. We'll talk about it more later. Uh, nothing that's happening in our culture is a surprise to him. And so he's called us to be part of that force of salt and light. So I want to keep our perspective. But what I want to do here as I start, I want to talk a little bit about um, what happened in, our, uh, in the elections this week. Uh, because last week I told you that this week would be, um, the message would probably change based on what happened this week, and for sure it did. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but don't jump to conclusions. Don't jump to conclusions. Um, because uh, what I would say is that in a, a church of our size, that we're going to have a lot of diversity of opinions about what happened in the elections this week, especially I'm talking about a presidential election. Uh, on the one hand, my guess would be that for many of us here, um, that we would be um, thankful for what happened this week. And I think that the reason for that would be primarily, as I've talked to different Christ followers, is that primarily it's because of concerns over religious liberty and pro-life issues that are at stake. We, we see where our government is going, and so uh, there were many Christ followers who felt like that we need to vote for uh, Mr. Trump because of those reasons, right? And so um, there would be many of you here that would probably put yourself in that camp, but I want you to catch there's many of us here that would feel differently about that. 
There are many of us here that would struggle with that. How in the world can someone who calls himself a Christ follower, a thinking Christ follower, vote for someone who is on record so often for being so reckless in their conversation, so racist in their comments, so inappropriate with women, and on and on and on. And so even in our church, we're going to have people that see this differently. This week, I sent out an email on Wednesday. Uh, I, I went to bed before the election was over. Um, I woke up. I was kind of shocked. It was 4.15 in the morning. Uh, and all day long, I was trying to process this. I couldn't even work on the message. Uh, I felt like I need a day. And I normally finish my message on Wednesday. I felt like I need a day. And I need to hear what's happening in our church and the world. And I need to process it. And... Uh, and so, but as we met that day as a, as a staff, as a team, uh, one of the things I became concerned about was our life groups. And so I sent an email out to all of our life group leaders, uh, our coordinators, and our apprentices. And I said, hey, I just want you to make you aware, as, as you go to your life group this week, if you've not met yet, you need to understand that people are going to be coming from different places on the map in terms of the results of this election. And what I said is there are solid Christ followers, followers of Jesus, people who love Jesus and are very smart and wise on both sides of this issue. And I said, so, so here is an article from a man I have tremendous respect for, Wayne Grudem, who's a very famous systematic theologian that's... This, he's saying, here's why in spite of the problems, I think Christians should vote for Mr. Trump. And here is an article responding to Wayne Grudem's article written by um, John Mark Reynolds, who is a philosophy professor at Biola University, saying why this is the worst thing in the world to vote. And what I said was, I want you to understand, as life group leaders and coordinators, and you're going to have some people coming into your group that might want to give thanks for the, 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 uh, the results, and you're going to have other people coming in heartbroken, and their hearts torn out. Un they don't know how any Christian could vote this way. And I think that for us as a church, it is so important that we understand this dynamic. This is exactly the dynamic I talk to you about all the time about primary issues and secondary issues. The reality is you have really bright, gifted, godly men and women who have thought through this issue and are on different sides. I got an email yesterday from a woman, young woman in our church, and I want to share this with you because I think it would be helpful. Um, I asked her for permission. She gave it. Uh, he's, you know, willingly happy. <laughs> uh, that didn't come out real well. Uh, yeah, I'll fix it for tomorrow. Uh, that's why I like Saturday night. I can get away with anything with you guys. And, uh, although I got to tell you, last week we decided to post online. I chose Saturday night. It's like, you know, so, so anyway. So um, anyway, but Ketcha, she, she calls this heavy heart. And I just want you to hear, this, this is a sister of ours here at Rocky Peak, right? And, uh, and she's a uh, Hispanic. She self-identifies as a Latina. And so I want you to hear her heart. It's a beautiful email. And she says, so she calls it heavy heart. She said, hi, Pastor Michael. I'm sure you are preparing heavily for your sermon this weekend. And Lord knows we need some words of wisdom right now. My heart has been so heavy, and I just wanted to share a few words. The pain of this election is real, and the fiery darts that were thrown at people of color in this country hit right to the heart. It's hard to be in a community with Christians that, for one, don't really understand this because they were not the target, but also that they can so over, easily overlook our pain. When Christians beg to go back to a time when our country had more church, value, church values and principles, I hope they understand that they are begging to go back to a time when there might have been Bibles in the schools, but segregation and lynchings in the streets. 
the most devastating thing to come out of this election is not that racial lines still run deep in the nation, but that racial lines are very much a part of the church, our church at Rocky Peak. I just wanted to share my heart with you and ask for your prayer for those of us who feel divided from their own church family and who feel hurt and hesitant about facing their life groups. That's why I wrote the email. And walking into those church doors in fear that the pain will be ignored or attacked. There are those of us who are heartbroken that racism, hatred, sexual perversion were voted into the Oval Office under the banner of pro-life, which I think was actually more, not just pro-life, but this religious freedom, but you get the point. It seems to me more than ever that in hopes to gain the world, we've lost our soul. And then she says something very profound, and I want to talk about this. She says, there's an, but there's an opportunity now to start the process of healing in our church. And it begins with putting an end to defending Donald Trump and instead defending our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, listen to me carefully here. I'm going to do something that I don't do a lot. Um, I don't hesitate to do it. I just don't do it a lot. In Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. He says, correct, rebuke, and encourage. And I, I want to do some correction here, right? And it's, it's not so much for anyone here specifically because I've not seen this specifically in our church, but then that's why I stay off Facebook, so I won't see it. Um, but I think that as followers of Jesus, remember last week we talked about one of the biggest mistakes we can make is wrap Jesus in the flag. We wrap Jesus in politics, uh, our, not politics, in our political party. We wrap Jesus in our country. And then unwittingly what happens is we end up standing up for things, putting Jesus' name behind things, whether it's racism or oppression of the poor or whatever the issue is. And it's so important as followers of Jesus that we learn to do this well, that we stand with Jesus wherever we, he stands. And so here's what I've seen, and I, I think as I look at the religious right, it happens all the time in our country, that there may be good reasons to vote for Donald Trump. I'm not taking a position on that. There may be good reasons. Wayne Grudem gives a great article. But in the process, as followers of Jesus, we should never minimize the downside. Do you see the difference? Like, let's say that I was in World War II and I had to vote for Hitler or Mussolini. Okay, now I could probably say, well, there's got to be one that's better than the other. But I don't want to minimize, well, no, but he did this, he did that. You see what I'm saying? And I think this is a huge mistake we often make in the Christian community is that we come to a decision of what we think is the best and then we just kind of close a blind eye to the horrible things that are done. And when we do that, we lose our moral authority as the church of Jesus. And what's happened right now is the name of Jesus is being, has been drugged through the mud. I believe nationally, you see, we're such an easy target because it's so easy because we're so non-discriminatory, uh, we're not having good discrim- uh, discretion, you see? So d- can you see the difference between that? It's one thing to vote for a candidate and say, of two evils, this is the best. It's another thing to say, and therefore, I'm going to minimize these evils. And when we do that, we lose our moral credibility, and we lose our witness. Does that make sense? Okay. So... Here's, when I talk about keeping your perspective in, what I'm talking about is two things. Number one, what I'm, I want you to catch is that w- however you feel about the election this week, whether you're very excited about that or you're very depressed about that, I, I just want to say that this doesn't change anything I said last week about the moral state of our country. We are in trouble. And a political solution won't solve it. There may be certain things that a political solution will do that will help, you know, but it won't solve it, that we are on a downward slide as a nation, and, and I don't want us to get a false sense of hope that, okay, well, this happened now, so now we're good. No, we're not. We are not. We are sick. The patient is sick. The patient is in ICU. We're on life support as a nation and as a culture, 
And unless the church of Jesus shows the way to true repentance, it will be the end. And so we need to keep perspective and not just go, okay, 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 now we're good. No, we're not. Everything I said last week is equally true this week. This is a result of 50 years of buying into a worldview that's destructive and leads to death. Unless that worldview changes, and can I tell you something? Nothing changed in the worldview this week. The second thing is, is that whichever side of this issue you're on, I want you to remember that Jesus is still king. And one of the, one of the most important teachings of the Bible is that, that God is so big that in spite of our rebellion and our, our fallen world, that he still rules, that he has an agenda, and catch it, the agenda is right on track. In fact, I want to take you back to just a couple of scriptures before we go on. Ephesians chapter 1, there in your note sheet, um, several of you, many of you were here a couple years ago, we did our major series on Ephesians, we called it Epic. And one of the things you'll remember we learned in that series, in chapter 1, it's an incredible chapter, and in chapter 1, um, Paul lays this out where he says that when a man or a woman comes to Jesus, that we discover that though we chose God, that the reality is he chose us long before. That we've been chosen to come to know him, to come to faith. And then we come to Jesus, that we've not only been chosen to be forgiven and to be adopted into his family, that we have been chosen uh, to receive the gift of his spirit to empower us to live a whole new life. And that we have been each uniquely gifted by his Holy Spirit with certain spiritual gifts to play an important part, catch us in God's cosmic plan to bring all of creation under his leadership. That's why we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. And so in that context, in chapter 1 and verse 11, look what he says. He says, in him, Paul says, in him, in others in Christ, we were also chosen, he's already said before the foundation of the world, having been predestined, planned out, according, catch this, according to the plan of him who works out what? Everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And this is a consistent teaching of scripture is that God reigns and he raises up and he lays down. He he takes down. In fact, um, in uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, which is a major time of crisis, cultural crisis in Israel. They've lost their nation. Daniel's been taken a thousand miles away. It'd be like us going to China, be taken to China or something like that, you know, like conquered. And, and he's, but he rises up through a series of events to, to place of power and advising the, the king of the empire, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and we won't go into all of that. But in this dream, what God is showing both Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel is that in spite of the devastation that's happened to Israel, God's plan is moving forward. And he shows them there'll be four successive empires that will rise. The, the, uh, that after Babylon, there will be the, the Persian and then the Greek and then the Roman Empire. And then in the time of that last empire, a kingdom will arise, not made from human hands, that will grow into a huge mountain that will never stop. You know who that mountain is? That's the kingdom of God. That's us. And so in the midst of cultural chaos and confusion, their country falling apart, God shows Daniel, hey, I am still in control, and I have a plan, and it's right on target. And there in Daniel, and when when he shows Daniel, in Daniel 2, this is what Daniel says, praise be. Like this is, remember Daniel's in a foreign land? He's been taken away from his homeland, His, his land's in ruins, and yet God is showing him that God is in control. And he says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. his, his change, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. There is a God in heaven who rules. And so as followers of Jesus, two things, I'm talking about keeping perspective. And as we move in the future as a church, no matter what happens, because I don't have a clue. Right? I don't have a clue. As we move in the future, we need to keep perspective, and we need to remember two things. Number one is that the solution to our issues of a culture are not political. At the core, they're spiritual. And number two, we need to remember that no matter what happens, there is a God in heaven, and guess this, the God who chose you turns out to be the creator God who runs the universe. 
and that he has chosen you to play an important role at this time, in this place, in this culture. And he has uniquely equipped you to play that role. And he's got a calling on your life. And so he would say, do not fear, for I am with you. I want you to move forward with courage and confidence that I have called you for such a time as this. I will equip you. I will strengthen you no matter what happens. This did not take me by surprise. There's nothing happening in your culture I didn't see coming. This is all part of what's working out, and you have an important part to play. You are the salt. You're the light of the world. And so lift up your head, and however you feel about this election, get some perspective. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Okay, now, the next one, the next step we need to take, right? So we know the times, and then we embrace repentance. So we get right with God and really give Him our lives, and then we keep perspective that He's in control. But the fourth step is to keep on shining. Now, I'm going to spend quite a time, uh, quite some time on this, because I want to spell this out. What I mean by this is that You know, one of the analogies that Jesus uses, it's one of the core analogies that describes what it means to be a follower. He said that we're to be the salt and light, right? I've used that many times already in this series. And I don't know if if you're up on those metaphors. But in the ancient world, salt was primarily not a seasoning, it was a preservative. So they didn't have refrigeration, so the way they would preserve meat from rotting is they would salt it, like fish or whatever the meat was. And so salt was a preservative. And so when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, what he's saying is that that in the midst of a a culture that has this natural tendency to reject the truth about God and lose their way and move into confusion, that the reason you're there is to preserve what is right and good and true and beautiful. That's your role. And your job is in the midst of an increasing darkening culture to light it up, to show the path to life. And that's the idea. So this is the way Jesus says it. He says, um, you, my followers, you are the salt of the earth. Now catch this, he doesn't say you should be. He says you are. You can either be good salt or bad salt, but you're all I got. Right? You're the salt. And like there, there is no other salt. Like you are the salt, uh, and, but if the salt loses its saltiness... If it loses its saltiness, if it doesn't do what it's supposed, if it's not true to its nature, if it doesn't perform like it's supposed to according to its nature, then how can it be made salty? Again, it's, it's only good for anything. That's what you're there for. If you don't preserve what's good and right and beautiful in culture, then why are you there? And then he says, it's only good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men and it says, you are the light of the world. So catch that. You're not that you should be. You are. Right? You know, and so are you 40 watt? You're 60 watt? You're dim bulb? Like, what are you, right? So you are the light. Like, we are the light. Like, we're the ones who knows God. We're the ones who have been revealed. This God's called us to know him and know the path to life. We, we're the ones that are the truth. So we, ha- we have the light. Right? He says... A city on a hill, like Jerusalem, um, or think of our cross up here, the 118 at night. A city on a hill, or the cross at Rocky Peak, cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before men. They may see your good what? Yeah, good deeds. In the Greek, it's works. Good works, and praise your Father in heaven. So he says, you are the salt. Um, you are the light. Now, catch this. Be who you are. <laughs> be who you are. I've changed you. I've rescued you. I've put my spirit in you. I'm not asking you to be something you're not. I'm asking you just to be who you are. Be who you are. Don't to pretend you're not who you are. Be who you are. And so how do we operate as salt and light in a culture that's in crisis? It's a great question. 
And a few weeks ago, I went back, as you know, to this conference called Centered and Sent um, in North Carolina, Raleigh-Durham. And you remember, I, I shared with you last week kind of the, the, the core idea of that is that, that we believe the church of Jesus can shine bright. You know, it's like we, can be, we need to be both culturally re- relevant and we need to be radically distinct. And one of the speakers that was there that I went to hear was Tim Keller. I don't know if you know Tim, and Tim's a pastor at Redeemer Church in, in uh, Manhattan, but he's also, he's a well-known author, apologist, just a great thinker, and I wanted to just hear what he was thinking. And one of the things we studied, we, we, we reviewed a lot in the whole conference, is how the movement of Jesus uh, advanced and influenced culture in the first three centuries. Now, a lot of you don't know this, but when the movement of Jesus started, it was not only small, it was the most despised and hated movement in the Roman Empire. This is a historical fact. Um, and yet, in just about 200 years, it became the most influential movement in the Roman Empire. Um, to the point where in early 300s, the Roman Empire said, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, right? So we'll make it a Christian empire. So how does a, a ragtag small group that starts in Jerusalem, like an act, how does that move from being the most hated and persecuted to the most influential. And what Keller suggested, and I think he's right in the money, is that they have this beautiful blend of being radically offensive <laughs> and radically attractive at the same time. Now, you say, well, what do you mean by radically offensive? Well, let me give you a couple examples. Um, and I wish, this is where I wish we had like an all-day seminar, but we don't. But we can cover example, I'll give you a few. First of all, um, let's, let's talk about how they were offensive in terms of two areas, their message and their lifestyle. Right? And then we'll come back and tell how they were, talk about how they were radically attractive with their message and their lifestyle. So their message, first of all, they were radically offensive because they believed and they taught that there's only one God And there's only one way to that God through the death of a Jew from Judea that they claimed was rose, died for sins, and rose from the dead. Now, it's hard for us to even begin to understand how radical, ridiculous, and offensive that whole thing was. Let's start with the one God thing. It is hard for us to even begin to imagine how many gods there were in the Roman Empire. Unlike today where spiritual life and secular life, like work life or political life are separated, in the ancient world, it was all intertwined. It was like one fabric woven. So for example, you would have household gods, the gods of your household. Do you remember the movie Gladiator? And like carrying his household gods? Very accurate. You'd have your household gods that you were required to honor every day you would have the gods of your uh, trade or your guilt. So when you'd meet, you'd pour libation to the gods. You would have the gods you'd worship at temples. It was part of your civic uh, and social life. Like, you know, we read in the New Testament, you know, eating meat sacrificed to idol. That was part of your gods. So you think of the Roman pantheon, the Greek pantheon, you know, the Zeus, the Hermes. Remember Aphrodite in Corinth? You think of, uh, remember we studied Acts uh, Artemis, greatest Artemis in, in uh, uh, Ephesus. And so you had those gods. You had the gods of your city. Each city had their own unique gods that you would honor and burn offering to. And about every week or two, there'd be parades to your gods for your city. And then there would be the god of the empire, Roma. You know, why do you think we've been so successful, so powerful? Because we've honored the gods. We have the god Roma. And then, and then there's the god, even the emperor in many parts of the Roman empire was worshiped as god. And so Gods were a part of your daily life. They were a part of the, just the fabric of life. Like you couldn't do anything with the gods. You couldn't work without gods or you couldn't live in a house without gods or your city without gods. I mean, gods were everywhere. And more than that, the ancients believed that it was in honoring the gods that was the key to your life, your success. You honor the honor of the gods of your household, your guild, your city, your empire. This is why you have success. 
And so Christians come along and their message is, no, there's only one God. All your gods are idols. They're not really gods. Do you see how that would put them at odds with the culture? You can't do anything. You can't, you become a Christian in your family, you're no longer worshiping your household gods. You go, you can't go to your work because you're doing libations to the gods. You can't participate in the parades and things. You can't go out to dinner because it's all at the temple. I mean, your life becomes ostracized fast and you're telling everyone that everything you believe is absolutely wrong. And not only are you wrong, but to the, your, everyone around you, you're committing high treason against the empire because by not honoring the gods, you're going to bring the judgment of the gods. Are you with me? For example, historian Larry Hurtado, he recently wrote a book uh, I really enjoyed called Destroyer of the Gods, which was about the movement of Christianity and how it destroyed all the gods of Rome. And he, but he's a historian. It's very measured. So he's explaining this. He says, by their refusal to do so, notice by the Christians' refusal to burn incense or worship the gods, Celsus, now Celsus was a big-time second-century critic, kind of like the Richard Dawkins of the second century. So by their refusal to do so, Celsus contended, Christians questioned the validity of the gods upon which, catch this, the social and political order rested. And so we're guilty of impiety, and at least implicitly of promoting sedition. If masses of people followed the Christians in this madness, Celsus declared, this would provoke the wrath of the gods and the social and political order would fall into anarchy and chaos. Well, what about their message about this Jesus, this one mediator between God and man? Ridiculous. Anyone who dies on a Roman cross has committed the most heinous of all crimes. This is a punishment reserved for the lowest of the scum of society. It was not even considered appropriate to talk about in in polite company. It was illegal if you're a Roman citizen. And then to claim that this crucified Jew rose from the dead? In Greco-Roman thought, the last thing you want is to rise from the dead. The body is seen as the prison of the soul. Remember Plato? And so the last thing you want, you want immortality, but immortality of the soul, not the body. That would be the worst nightmare. And now you're claiming this crucified Jew that got his body back is now ruling creation? This is ridiculous. And it's a threat to the empire. In fact, they would call the early Christians atheists. Why atheists? Because they didn't believe in any gods. They believed in a God you couldn't see. There was no priests, no sacrifice, no temples. We don't think there really is a God. They were completely out of step and extremely offensive. Well, let's talk about not just their message. Let's talk about their lifestyle. When Christians burst on this scene, sexual infidelity was considered normal. Uh, There was a a strong double standard. Um, If you are a woman and freeborn woman, not a slave or prostitute, that's that's all different there. If you're a freeborn woman, then sexual purity was honored. It's considered honorable not to have sex before you're married, and once you're married, to be faithful to your husband. That was honorable. If you're a man, it's assumed you're going to have sex all the time. So, uh, before you're married, yes. Uh, after you're married, yes. The one thing you don't want to do that was considered bad was to um, have sex at the same social level. That would be dishonorable. So, it's considered a good thing to have sex at lower levels so you wouldn't have inappropriate sex at your honorable level. Homosexuality was common, especially between men and boys. It was very well, you know, it was very, practiced all the time, very, very normal. And so, uh, Larry Hurtado again, look what he says. He says, in the larger Roman era cultural setting, this double standard in sexual practice was fully in force. Wives were generally held to one standard of behavior, strict marital chastity, husbands to quite another. Men, husbands, uh, men, husbands included, were allowed considerable more freedom to have sex with other women, uh, particularly women deemed not to possess status and honor. So, Although sex with wives of other men or freeborn virgins was not approved. Well, of course, it happened, but 
wasn't approved. Other kinds of sexual activities were openly tolerated and even encouraged. This included sex with courtesans and prostitutes and sex with boys, typically slave boys. An off-sighted statement of the 4th century B.C., Greek order Demosthenes, but indicative of the attitudes of later, later as well, is illustrative of the sexual latitude allowed to men. So this is how Demosthenes explained it. We have concubines for our pleasure. We have female slaves for our daily care, we have, uh, which was a sexual euphemism. Uh, we have wives to give us legitimate children to be guardians of our household. Right? So this is the Roman Empire. And so into this, Christianity comes. And other Jewish roots say, no, no, there is a God. And God has a plan for our sexuality, and he's created male and female. And so here's his plan, that sex is designed to bond together one man and one woman for a lifetime of love and commitment, what we call marriage, and to create a safe environment for children who can be raised with a mom and a dad in a safe environment, which will give the healthiest uh, uh, basis for society. How do you think that went over? Uh, no, Sam, yeah, I'm not going tonight. Remember, I came to Christ, you know? How do you think it would go over in our day? All right. Okay, so, so there's just a couple examples. Radically distinct, radically offensive. Their message and their lifestyle. Okay, let's talk about how they were attractive. How they were radically attractive. And once again, let's talk message and lifestyle. So in terms of their message, their message was incredible. Their message was there is a God, this one God that you keep rejecting, this one God actually loves you. And he loves you so much that he sent his only son to rescue you through that death you don't believe in. Now catch this, this was radical in the Roman Empire. There was no concept like this in the worldview of the gods. The gods, there were a billion of them, but the gods, for the most part, were distant. You could honor the gods, and the gods could bless a person, but there was no personal relationship. And also, there was no, this, this afterlife thing was very shady. It was like, yeah, there's probably some afterlife kind of soulish thing, but this teaching, this message that that through the physical resurrection of Jesus was proof that the new creation has started and that just as his body was raised, all of creation is going to be raised. And for those that follow this God, that they will receive new bodies for a new world. And it, it was such a strong conviction, they were willing to go to their death being persecuted and not deny their faith because they were so clear on that. When you think of the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, in 160 A.D., and the Roman, uh, the Roman emperor there saying, just deny Christ and I won't throw you to the wild animals. Deny Christ, I won't burn you at the stake. And he said, I'm 86 years old. I've served him for 86 years. He's always been true to me. How could I be untrue to him? You can burn me for a moment, but you can't stop me from rising again. And you can't, these Christians, you couldn't hold them down. And pagans are looking and saying, Wow. A God who loves you, a way to be truly forgiven, a new relationship with him and last forever. That was attractive message. And then there was their lifestyle. And their lifestyle was one of love. It's interesting because the pagans actually accused them of orgies. Because they, they always talked about love and they had love feasts. And they called each other's brothers and sisters. And so they called them atheists. They called them, you know, that they're sexually depraved. They also called them cannibals because they ate the body and blood of Jesus, right? A lot of misunderstanding out there. And so, but this lifestyle of love, these Christians, they just loved. They loved one another. They loved you. They loved you if you weren't part of them. They loved the poor. They loved babies that were thrown by the side of the road. They even loved their enemies. And they formed this new community of churches where broke down the barriers between races and sex and socioeconomics, and they, they were together. It was a vision of how life was created to be, 
And the ancient world was attracted to that. There in your note sheet, quote from Carl Edwards, who's another historian. He said, converting to Christianity meant joining a family that offered physical, economic, and emotional support in exceedingly troubled times. Early Christians shared their wealth freely with widows, orphans, elderly, the unemployed, the disabled, and the ill. They placed their lives at grave risk, caring for victims of the plague and other natural disasters while the pagans fled. They ransomed one another from barbarian captors. They distributed bread during famines, visited prisons and and prisoners and minors, the most wretched of all slaves. One group of Christians in Rome even sold themselves into slavery to raise the money to ransom their brethren from prison. They provided for the burial of the poor, they're hospitable to travelers, even the hostile emperor whom the Christians called Julian the Apostate. He was from 360 AD. Uh, after the empire became Christian, he wanted to turn it back to the pagan gods. Uh, he only lasted two years. Uh, <laughs> But look what he said. He said, these godless Galileans, you see that? Godless atheists, these godless Galileans, they feed not only their own poor, but others while we neglect our own. And so in this early movement of Jesus, what I want you to catch, what does it mean to be salt and like? It means to be radically distinct and radically attractive. And any time the church of Jesus gives up the offense or gives up the attraction, the love, we lose. It is this combination. And men and women, I want to say it today as we move into this era. You say, this is very much like our day, isn't it? Why are we offensive? Because there is one God and one mediator between God and man and everything else is wrong. Why are we offensive? Because we say that sex is a gift for one man and one woman for a lifetime. And any kind of sex outside of that is destructive and damaging. Are these not the two issues that face us as a culture today? And there is a temptation even in the church of Jesus Christ to give up on the truth in order to relate And what I'm telling you, if we give up the truth, we lose our saltiness and we lose our light. We become as dark as the world out there and there is no longer an answer. There is no longer a preservative. There is no longer a flashlight lighting the way to life. And so as followers of Jesus, we cannot give up the truth of Jesus Christ. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself a ransom for all at the perfect time. And there is a way to live that leads to life. And so we hold the truth, but we also, we have to be living the life and sharing that message. And if we are not loving one another, if we're not breaking down the barriers in our own midst like I talked about earlier, if we're not loving those outside of our circle, if we're not loving our enemies, we will lose our impact as we've already done in this country. And we will not be salt, we will not be light, we will lose our saltiness and the light will go out and the culture will die. And so as followers of Jesus, it's not either, remember how Jesus put it, Uh, how John described Jesus in John chapter 1, he said when he came, he came full of grace and truth. It is both and. And just a quick sidebar, this is why several years ago we started doing all serve. Because I could see this coming, that there's going to come a day where people will not be willing to listen to our words. There's coming a day, they will not invite They will not accept an invitation unless they experience love, which is the most powerful apologetic in the world. Unless they experience love, they will not be open to hearing the message. And so it's not an either or stand up for right or love. It is a both and. We have got to be radically offensive and be willing to pay the price for that because that's for the truth that leads to life and radically attractive by the love and the message we bring. Amen? Amen. All right, now, one last thing, one last point. 
is uh, we need to share the story. And what I mean by this is that we have to learn how to connect with our culture and connect the story of Jesus with the story of our culture. We have to have a better narrative, a better story than our culture has. Right now, our culture has a story. The story is this world happened as a random act of chance, luck, through billions of years. And therefore, there is no really ultimate value of right and wrong, truth and error. Um, and so truth is what you, whatever you choose it to be. And so you can make it up as you go. And that's the story that our, our culture is telling. That's the story of life. Uh, and so there's a certain appeal to that, like we talked about last week. If there is no God, and there is no ultimate right and wrong, there is no one to tell you what to do. You can be your own God. And there's, as a fallen race, there's appeal to that, right? But what many people haven't read to the end of this book, and the end of the book is if there is no right and wrong, there is no one to stop Hitler. If there's no one If there's no such thing as right and wrong, there is no one to stop racism. There is no one to stop sexual trafficking. If all values are arbitrary, there is nothing to stop injustice, and beauty is a figment of our our imagination. And if if you walk down that road long enough, it becomes grayer and grayer and grayer over time until you end up with a dead end where you realize what this means is there is no purpose in life, there is no meaning in life, there is no beauty in life, there is no truth in life, there is no goodness in life, there is no love in life. All that's left is chemical reactions in our brain. And when you get there, that is a very lonely place to be. And yet that is a story our culture is telling. And we have to get better at telling our story. And saying, we have a different story that we believe makes more sense. Can we help you see where your story goes? And maybe we just get better at asking questions because they probably wouldn't even appreciate it that way. We just had to be a little Columbo, right? Ask some questions. Be a little Socrates. Ask some questions. And help people see where this road leads. And then when they ask, we need to be ready with better answers. We need, to, we need to have a story that is not only true, but it's true, and it's beautiful, and it's good, and it corresponds to the deepest needs of the human heart because it is true. It corresponds to reality. So there in your note sheet, 1 Peter chapter 3 Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are undergoing persecution. They've come to Jesus. Their ways are radically offensive, but they're also attractive. And so the people around them, while are maliciously attacking them, they're also curious. And so he says, so always be, what's the next word? Always be prepared. He says, be ready to share your story. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who what? Ask you, we're not cramming it down throats, but if you live a life that's radically offensive and that's radically attractive, sooner or later people will ask, if for no other reason, is why are you willing to be persecuted? And he says, but to give you, uh, when they ask to give the reason for the hope that you have, that hope is that term in the New Testament for the future, this you're so excited about this future. He says, but do it with two things, with what? gentleness and respect. Men and women, can I just say this? If you're on the internet, you're on Facebook, anything you post, you should hold up to say, is it gentle and is it respectful? And if it isn't, find another church. I'm serious about this. Either either you repent, repent and join us, or stay angry and ugly Christian and go find some others that feel the same way. Like, we don't have time for that here. We've got a mission. 
We've got a calling. Our job is to be salt and light. If you're not willing to follow Jesus, love our enemies, gentleness and respect, we treat people well. Wasn't it awesome this week to see President Obama and to see uh, uh, Mrs. Clinton and just the gracious words and their concession? It was just a beautiful thing. Like we need more of that and we need to lead the way for that, right? How can we claim the name of Jesus when what comes out of our mouth is ugliness and hatred and like what, like what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? It's like this is Jesus 101. Love your enemies. And yet somehow we've got this misguided concept of self-righteous anger. Men and women, we need to repent. And if we're not interested in repenting, I'm serious. Find another church. So that those who, and he says, the reason we need to do this is, and he said, you need to keep a clear conscience. In other words, let your life and your message match up. Like, in other words, you can't have this message and a life that contradicts it. So be ready to give an answer, but a clear conscience. You're living a life, you have a clear conscience. So that those who speak maliciously, against your good behavior, you know, why are you doing sex that way? Why do you only have one God? You know, may be ashamed of their slander because they'll realize that doesn't really fit. It's not really accurate. And so we need to to develop and learn how to give not simplistic answers, but how to engage our culture in real dialogue and conversation to be more question askers than answer givers. And not give answers before people are ready. But we love them until that door is open to share our story, God's story, and a little bit more. You know, we started today with this story of this 34-year-old woman uh, teaching at Syracuse University. Uh, really at the top of her game in her eyes in so many ways, loved by her students, respected by her colleagues, secure in her future, uh, gifted writer, and so on. And I want to sh- end by just telling you the rest of the story because it's an amazing story. It's a true story. In fact, she tells her own story in the book that's on your note, sh- on your note sheet. But uh, what happens is that she wrote an article uh, in a paper, newspaper, she wrote an editorial on the Promise Keepers movement. Now, this was late 90s. Uh, remember, Promise Keepers was a major Christian men's movement. Of course, she's a radical feminist who believes God is dead. So you can imagine that didn't go over well with her. So she writes this article. And of course, as you might imagine, she gets a lot of mail, uh, got tons of mail, uh, both supportive and hate mail. And hate mail mostly coming, predictably, from Christians. And uh, so she's got two boxes on her desk in her office, two big Xerox boxes, um, one for the hate mail from the Christians and one for the supportive mail. And she opens up this letter one day and she doesn't know what to do with it because it doesn't fit in any cate- either category. It's written by an elderly pastor. He's clear, he's well-spoken, he's, he's kind. Um, and... Uh, and he asked some great questions, just dialogue questions. He doesn't try to tell, he just, just asks. You know, asks her questions about how did she come to her point of view? Um, what are some of her worldview presuppositions are, like we've talked about? He asks her about her relationship with God. And uh, she happens to be doing a book, uh, a second book. She happens to be writing a book on the uh, religious right. Because she's, she wants to discredit the religious right. So she's writing a book on religious right. And so uh, she doesn't know what to do with this letter. Because it doesn't really fit in either box. So she just leaves it in the middle of her desk. But she's, she's a neatnik. And it's just bugging her. It's sitting in the middle of her desk. So several times that week, she throws it in a recycling bin. But for whatever reason, by the end of the day, she'd go back and get it out again. And so finally, he'd offered to talk to her on the phone. And so she finally decides to call him just for research purposes. And so she calls him and... He's very intelligent, 
It's kind, clear. They have a great conversation. And partway through, he said, you know, you're asking some great questions. I think what would be great is to have you over to our house and my wife make a nice dinner, and we could just sit before the fireplace and talk about these important issues. And so she, she accepted. And so she came over to his house. She drives up with her bumper stickers, LGBT, bumper stickers, her pro-choice bumper stickers, their butch hair. <laughs> and she comes in, and she's not knowing what to expect. And she instantly likes these people. They're so likable. They're well-spoken. They're smart. They can talk about literature. He used to teach English literature. He's an English major. They can talk about that together. They'd made a vegetarian meal, which she loved because her partner was an animal rights activist. So that went over big with her. They didn't have the heat real high, so she liked that because it protected the environment. And... Uh, so they just began to dialogue, right? They've been dialogue, and they asked her a lot of questions about her. They seemed to really care about her, and she kept waiting for that punch that was going to come in the gut when they're going to say something really offensive, and it never came. Up to this point, she, knows, she said she'd known some Christians, but not very well. Every Christian she'd known was like a non-thinker. They're the kind of person that says the Bible says to shut down all, kind of discuss, all discussion. They live by cliches like Jesus is the answer when no one's even asking a question. Uh, <laughs> She said they were kind of schmaltzy, always blessing this, blessing that, like a Hallmark card. She said they were holding up signs at the gay rights parades, you know, God hates fags. It was the hate mail she was getting. The people, the students that refused to read some of the books she had assigned because she felt like they, they know Jesus, they don't need to know anything else. And so that was her impression of Christians. And here was a couple that was blowing her mind. It was just like they're blowing her stereotype. And uh, she didn't know what to do with that. One of the points of the evening was most impactful is when they prayed over their meal. And she said she never heard something so personal, intimate. She felt like she was being ushered into a very private thing. It was very special. So this great conversation, and by the end of the night, when they left, she said she'd come in just convinced that God is dead, and she went out with new questions. And so they began to have more dialogue and for her research, and she began to read the Bible for her research, you know, five hours a day, just reading it, what do Christians believe. She'd skip over the awkward parts that she didn't like. They're just kind of reading it. They would begin to have these conversations. They became friends. They, he would go to her, her classroom at Syracuse and visit her in her classroom. She would drop by unannounced to their house. She invited him over to meet all her gay friends at their place, their parties. And they went on a two-year journey and after two years, she gave her life to Jesus. And she said, you know, that first night, they didn't talk to me about Jesus, and they didn't invite me to church. I'm so glad it would have been way too much for me. And she said, my conversion was more of a train wreck than a beautiful story. It was like a collision with everything I believed as a postmodern person. And it started her on a journey, a journey of transformation. And it was not easy. And then she went through that process. God just healed her at so many levels. Today she's married to a man who's a pastor. They have four adopted children of color. Beautiful story. And I'm telling you, this is the church of Jesus. Radically distinct. Radically offensive. Radically attractive. This is the call that he's put in us. And men and women, as this church, I want to lead us in the future. I want us to go in heads held high, hearts full, confident. If God is with us, who can be against us? It may get hard. It may get tough. Persecution may come. But we are going to love people, and we're going to love Jesus, and we're going to shine like stars in a bright night, and we're going to be salt that preserves everything that's good and right and true in the midst of a darkening culture. Amen? Amen. 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 Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. And God, as we move into troubled times, challenging times, God, we want to move in with the confidence of Jesus, we think of what you said, Jesus, to your disciples. In this world, you will have trouble. The night that you were arrested. In this world, you will have trouble. But take courage, for I have overcome the world. And so, God, we come and we pray in the midst of a darkness, we might shine bright, that you'd give us courage, you'd give us repentance, 
You'd call us to our knees, that we would repent of everything that we have done that have kept others from you. We'd open up our heart. We'd be full of your spirit. We would love one another like we've never loved before. We would break down barriers, and that we would live out a life that becomes a model for society around us. There is a way to be fully human and to live in love together. We pray as we bring your offerings, our gifts. We pray you'd use us to make us a light on that hill. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, that's our prayer, is just to have your way. God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, starting in us as it is in heaven. God, we continue to pray for our land. And we pray right now, Lord, for the violence and the anger and the hatred and all that's going on. God, we pray that you would bring peace. You had said, blessed are the peacemakers. And we want to be part of that, God. We want to be part of that here in our body. Help us to reach out to one another and to love and accept one another. Even if we disagree on this issue, that we would listen well and we would try to understand and we would break down that we might be the picture of what life could be like that's lived in love. So God, I pray that your grace will be upon this church. Lord, I pray for your mercy on this church. I pray for a spirit of repentance on this church. I pray for a spirit of courage, God that we would not be afraid, that we would be radically offensive and radically attractive. And God, that therefore we would be salt and light in the midst of a dying and dark world. And so God, we pray for your mercy on us that you would hold us accountable personally. God, I'm asking you as leader of this church, I'm asking you to hold us accountable. I'm praying that you would not let us go, that you would not let us be mediocre, You would not let us be lukewarm. You would not let us be compromised. You would not let us live in racial sin. You would not let us live in hatred or bitterness. That we would not be on the internet being part of the problem. That we would be part of the solution, God. And you would send a spirit of repentance and love that takes us. That we would love our enemies, God. We pray that Jesus 101 would would rule deeply in our heart. That we would learn this lesson. God, we pray that we would be under the mighty power of your spirit, that we would be a force for good wherever we go. In the name of Jesus, we'll be honored and lifted up because of his life being lived in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Hey, a couple things as you go. Uh, Number one, if you need to repent, just go home and do that. Uh, number two, uh, if you need prayer about anything, we always have this every week. Sometimes we mention it, sometimes we don't. But to my right, against the far wall, there are some men and women who would love to pray, but badges on, love to pray, whatever you're facing. And then finally, next week, we are kicking off our fifth and final series in the book of Acts. And uh, so we're going to wrap this up uh, the week before Christmas. And uh, so inside your program, you have these little handouts to invite people, to remind yourself. And uh, this series is called Sent Through the Storm. <laughs> Amen. Whoa. Yeah, right. Name chosen before all this, but uh, maybe prophetic. Amen? So uh, have a great week. I love you guys. I'll see you next weekend. <laughs>